Root Simple Podcast. Low tech, home tech. Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knutson, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. In episode 16, Kelly and I discuss urban wildlife with naturalist Lyanda Lynn Hopt, author of, most recently, The Urban Bestiary, and also Crow Planet, Pilgrim of the Great Bird Continent, and Rare Encounters with Ordinary Birds. Welcome, Lyanda, to the Root Simple Podcast. Yeah, welcome, Lyanda. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. Thank you. I am so happy to talk to you guys. All right, Lyanda. The urban bestiary is about the animals we find in our own backyards. What are the common characteristics of animals who share habitat with humans? And how are we like these animals that we share our habitat with? Wow, those are big questions. But, you know, one of the common characteristics of the animals that share our backyards and neighborhoods all over the country. So I'm thinking of raccoons and opossums and crows and um, also several wild, wilder animals like uh, hawks and coyotes and you know, a, lot, a lot of other creatures. All of these creatures are not particularly sensitive to habitat. So you have some animals like a big woodpecker, like a pileated woodpecker, that needs big old trees somewhere close by. You need anim- you have animals like osprey that need a good body of water close by. But with all of the urban animals that we're talking about, they don't need anything in particular other than shelter for themselves and their young, a source of water that can be a puddle or a leaky faucet somewhere, and a, a good food source. And we provide that in urban places with our, you know, our uh, garbage cans with ill-fitting lids, with the pet food that we leave outside, with the gardens that we tend so lovingly, uh, you know, in our in our backyards. So it, they're animals that aren't attached to a particular food or food source or habitat. Type. And I guess, you know, you, your second part of that question was what we have in common with them. And if you think about it, we share all of those characteristics ourselves. I mean, we're really, we're scrappy, we're adaptive. One thing that we may not realize about most of the urban animals, because I think we have some judgments about, um, you know, squirrels being dumb, for example, or, you know, opossums being dim-witted or, or other animals not not measuring up to our thoughts about what makes an animal intelligent. But contrary to that misconception, almost all of the animals that share our urban places are really clever and really intelligent, which makes them, which makes their behaviors really adaptive, you know, so they can adapt to new situations, they can adapt quickly to changes. Um, And so those are characteristics that we share with them. And I would never think that they are slow-witted because anybody who's ever fought a garden war with a squirrel or a raccoon or a skunk knows that they uh, that they uh, can outthink us pretty easily. Yeah, isn't that true? I think a lot of people... Uh, oh my gosh, I'm watching a squirrel out my window right now eat my uh, sunflowers by dangling. It's so funny. We're just talking about this and here it is. It's dangling from its back feet so it can use its front feet to, you know, eat. <laughs> to steal your... Um, <laughs> to steal my... Sunflower. Is it like a bird feeder sunflower seeds? No, it's an actual sunflower. <laughs> oh, Okay. And it's nothing. I actually just leave them all for the goldfinches and, and the squirrels anyway. But but you're right. I think it's really funny that um, I've heard people over and over say that squirrels are stupid. And yet they're often the same people that are losing, you know, this years long battle between their own bird feeders and the squirrels. So it's kind of funny. The squirrels almost always beat us at that game. Well, let's talk about that battle. Often our relationship with these creatures is adversarial and I'm wondering if it needs to be adversarial or if there's a way that we can, everyone can just get along somehow. You know, it's true that uh, there's a a book that came out about the same time that my book, The Urban Bestiary, came out and it was called The War with Wildlife. I think that was the name of it. And it's a book that I I enjoyed because it had a lot of good information in it, but personally, I would never frame our relationship in our neighborhoods with wild animals in that way because I'm really seeking 
a, a new framework for human and wild animals in urban places. And I think that we so often see our homes and we've, we've been sort of brought up culturally to think of our homes as kind of a fortress that is sort of impenetrable by anything except ourselves. You know, we go into our house and close the doors and nothing can get in. We go outside and we build our garden and we make it just how we want it to. And anything that disturbs that, you know, um, perfection that we've created is seen as a threat is seen as, um, you know, and, and the animal that caused it, we, we are now at war with or in a battle with, or we have to defeat it or get rid of it. And I, I think that, I mean, a, a lot of things are going on. One is just that, you know, that language and that, that way that, that, that we think about it. Another one is that we perceive harms and we worry about dangers from the wild animals that live among us that are based, I'm going to say, not on, I don't want to, you know, sound critical. I don't think they're based on not stupidity on our part, but just on misconceptions and a lack of good available knowledge about, you know, what, what really is dangerous and what isn't. Um, what we do have to have caution about and what we really don't about um, wild creatures in our yard. So I, I think that we, the things that we're cautious, that we feel that we need to be cautious about are often hyped in our imaginations and by our media and by our lack of access to good information. Let's unpack that adversarial relationship a little bit more. What are some of the things that one does need to be concerned about? And then what are some common sense ways without without getting into that kind of warrior mentality that one could say, you know, I mean, I understand the frustration of you have an apple tree and you lose all the apples to squirrels. I mean, how, how do we have that relationship without it being adversarial and, and have some apples too? We have huge questions for Lyanda. <laughs> I guess see. that's kind of a big that's, question. That's really big. That's a big question. Let me, uh, let me take, let me start with sort of a, a, maybe a more philosophical viewpoint and then go into the practical. I think that it could benefit all of us to sort of take a step back, especially when we're really frustrated and we think, okay, it's eating our apples or our, our the mole is making a mess or whatever, to sort of take a step back and kind of think, instead of thinking, okay, what, what harms are being caused, just think, okay, here I am on this urban parcel of land. And I really like thinking of our, our, our yards and the places we live as land, you know, just kind of opening it up to all of those ecosystemic processes that happen in the forest, they're happening in our yards as well. So, so here we are, we are on this, this little piece of land. What's going on here with us? You know, what animals live here? What are their pathways through my yard? What are they coming for? And, you know, what are they finding and not finding? And making this a months long project of sort of really getting to know the wildlife in your own yard, standing back as an observer of nature, instead of you know, a, a gardener with something to protect can really open our eyes. And sometimes it can be more fascinating and more interesting and more fun than having the tidiest <laughs> of vegetable gardens. So you would like so, to see us become urban naturalists. Observers. Right. right. And then when we do, the more we learn about the animals that live in our midst, I think the more that we can act um, with grace and wisdom when we come into these conflicts that, that do occur and figure out a way to to respond in a manner that, that we get, maybe maybe we recalibrate what it is that we think that we want from, from um, our gardens and from the land that we live on. Maybe we recalibrate that relationship and think about it a little differently. And maybe if we're really committed to that apple tree, then we have the knowledge and the observation to sort of act in a way that will, that will work best. Yeah, I agree. We, Eric and I were talking earlier this week about re-envisioning gardens. Like, how, how can we re-envision the garden to make it a perhaps a, a wilder space or a less formal space or a space with different expectations or a space that feeds creatures differently that, that would create more space for wild creatures and yet still provide pleasure and product for humans as well? You had quoted in your book that uh, Michael Pollan saying nature abhors a garden. And uh, especially in light of our continuing drought here, I think the 
I agree with him in that the um, the very tidy lawn and rose bush and apple tree and you know tiny little vegetable garden plot is is sort of doomed at least in Southern California. We we can't we don't we can't afford the water to keep that going. The and the creatures make havoc with it. And so why can't we think out of the box? You know we're not in England. They probably have their own troubles in England anyway. But you know and and re recalibrate our gardens to to really reflect lived reality and not a fantasy of what a garden should look like. Exactly. And uh, yeah, those, I mean, we, we are not having a drought here. Yeah, I'm in Seattle. Um, but of course we're hearing all about what you're experiencing and that's putting pressure on the wild animals that live in your neighborhoods as well to um, come and seek out food where they can find it. And it's pro- probably more commonly, you know, in your yards than it has, has ever been. Yes. That's true. Um, yeah, so I think you're right. I think one of the the visions is sort of giving up that expectation of of tidiness and perfection, um, opening our our um, minds to a little bit of chaos in our garden. I mean, I, I think that we have this expectation that every that when things happen that aren't unexpected or unplanned or not how we want that they're bad but instead it's just maybe it's a wilder more creative maybe more artistic and maybe more interesting way of being to just sort of allow a little bit more uh, understand that if we're not going to live in neighborhoods where we you know club everything to death that's not human or that we're you know that that we're a little bit worried about and that we have enlivened neighborhoods that we share with, you know, a variety of species, then we have to be open to a little bit of uneasiness, maybe a little bit of worry sometimes and some chaos and untidiness in our, in our landscapes. And there's another question I have too, because a lot of the creatures that we're talking, that you talk about in the book live symbiotically with human beings and we tend to have a different relationship with those animals, I've noticed. Like, when we talk about welcoming wild animals into a garden, we're often thinking about some kind of native bird or oh, some... Oh, yeah, the quails came back to my yard. Yay! Exactly, <laughs> you know, but we're not, to. <laughs> we're not talking about opossums or raccoons <laughs> or things like that. And it's kind of tied up in this whole idea of, of invasive species. And I wonder if you think that there's a way to, to rethink that word and, and to think about these particular creatures that live symbiotically with us and what their role could be? You know, a lot of the animals that we think of as invasive are not actually ecologically invasive. I mean, there are starlings, pigeons, and house sparrows are all species that are not native to this country, um, but that are here to stay in terms of their numbers. There's just not a way to get rid of them. And same with the eastern gray squirrels that are now, you know, populating the side of the country. Um, But many of these animals, you know, the raccoons and the coyotes and the crows and most of the birds are animals that are native to our our region, to our country, and to the places that we live, and so you know, we've always lived in close proximity to them. We just, but because there's been so much more space. I mean, I'm talking about in human history, humans have always lived in proximity to wild animals. But because there's more space, we and we weren't you know pressed together both as humans and animals into these smaller habitat areas. We weren't. We weren't dealing with as close a conflict as we are now. As far as the animals that really do only live where humans live, like many, I mean, some eastern gray squirrels are invading, you know, um, wilder places now. But as far as the starlings and the pigeons and the many crow populations only live where humans live, as far as all of those go, I think that in a way, they're an inevitable part of the urban landscape. And it's true that we think of them as kind of ratty or weedy species, but it's it, we, again, kind of have to turn that back on ourselves and realize we're talking about, you know, it's like the club that you don't want to join because they'd have you as a member. <laughs> you know, These are the animals that can live in the really ecologically impoverished areas that we've created by the spread of concrete and 
um, sprawl and human habitations and strip malls. And so my feeling is, yes, is it preferable to um, find ways to increase habitat space and green space and offer safe habitat for a richer diversity of species and especially bird species in cities? Yes. Meanwhile, I am all in favor of learning from and enjoying the wild creatures in our midst. And a starling is definitely a wild creature. It's not a domestic native, but it is a wild bird that is intelligent, that uh, doesn't mind being closely observed. We can learn a lot about birds and about how birds live together and, and, and what they need and what their life histories are and what their biological imperatives are. All of these birds among us, we can learn a great deal from and with. And um, I think that's a beautiful opportunity. Do I wish there were no starlings? Absolutely. You know, if, I, if there was an easy way to, to get rid of them, I would be in favor of it. But we've tried everything and they're still here. So they're part of the landscape. And so my feeling is um, not exactly if you can't beat them, join them, because I think we should do what we can to uh, limit, uh, uh, for example, if you have, you know, a, a tube sticking out from your house that starlings have nested in in the past, you know, Take the nest out and, you know, once the young are born or before they're hatched, if you can, and seal it up so they don't, you know, so they can't get in. I think we should find ways to do that kind of thing. But with the starlings that we do see, learn learn and enjoy. So we're moving into um, practicalities because we had... Uh, talked about there's the philosophical side of it and then the practical side of coexisting peacefully with these animals. And that brings us to our questions from our readers, okay. because a lot of them were, uh, you know, I think are going to allow you to talk about the uh, the practicalities. And as you might expect our, from our readership, a lot of them are urban homesteading concerned sort of questions. You know, we're worried about our chickens, worried about our gardens. So yeah, I think this is a good forum for you to to look at some of that practical stuff for us. We had two different questions, one about gophers and one about moles. Mm -hmm. And I realized that a lot of people confuse gophers and moles. And, and so we thought, wondered if you might describe like what the difference is from the surface. Like, you know, what, what does a gopher mound look like versus a, a mole's damage? And then uh, and tell us if you have any advice for people who are frustrated by having these guys in their yard. Well, gophers and moles are actually very different. Gophers are rodents and moles are not. Other than their, you know, subterrestrial habits, their lifestyles are, are very different too. One thing I have to tell you, I have to tell you up front about gophers is that we don't have gophers where I live. So I have not experienced trying to deal with the damage or havoc that they cause. So when I thought about them for this book and in talking to people, I talked to people that do live with them in other parts of the country and also wildlife biologists that, that deal with the conflicts that come from gophers. And one of the things I learned right away is that People confuse gophers. Gopher is kind of a catch-all term for dozens of rodents and moles that are just basically, you know, kind of small gopher-sized creatures that run around on the ground. You know, in, in California, the uh, California ground squirrel is sort of gopher-sized and they both have short tails. So that's a, a common one that they're confused with. But actual pocket gophers are common and they do like to chew on you know roots and on bulbs and they drive people crazy that way they can destroy you know a, a beautiful um you know your favorite specimen plant or tree but because people don't see them because they're they're subterrestrial and often not seen one of the things that people don't learn about is the benefits of pocket gophers. Like moles, they aerate the, the soil with their tunnels, you know, kind of like an earthworm, but on a larger scale. But gophers can actually, one single, I, I heard this uh, statistic over and over, and it kind of blew my mind. One pocket gopher can, over the course of the year, till a full ton, a literal ton of soil. Wow. So exchange the soil with the surface soil and push up all of the, you know, waste products and decomposing plant matter that make our surface soil rich and fertile. So we could never double dig enough <laughs> to get that much <laughs> right. soil exchange in a year. So they're kind of doing 
some of our garden work for us. And if we realize that, sometimes we come to understand that the benefits, the unseen benefits outweigh the surface level damage. As far as excluding gophers, it seems to be a really, it seems like a losing proposition. I have heard no one recommend anything that they've felt has great success. But most of the wildlife biologists told me that if you put up, if you have a favorite tree or shrub that you really want to defend from the gophers to put up a mesh fence around it that's at least two feet high because they're not as prone to climbing as um, squirrels are. And then it needs to go underground surrounding the roots of your plant at least 18 inches underground. So that's not going to keep a mole from something because moles are happy to dig much deeper than that. But that's sort of as far as a gopher wants to dig. Now, moles are totally different in that while gophers really do eat our roots and bulbs, moles don't. I mean, they might nibble here and there, but what they're really after are invertebrates. And it's another thing I wish people would understand because I really like moles. I think they're just fascinating, small and super soft creatures. They eat invertebrates, so they eat the insects and larvae that really do damage our plants. They will, when they're tunneling underground, just going from here to there in our yards, they can push up um, bulbs or root plants. And so people think that, you know, they've been eating them, but often it's, you know, something else. It's often a rat that comes in, (laughs) will eat the bulb that the mole has inadvertently pushed up in its tunneling. But again, they're aerating the soil, they're eating very damaging pests and they're an indicator that your soil health is good because they really like soft moist soil another thing with moles is that they're very territorial so there's this misconception that when you have a ton of mole holes mole hills (laughs) you actually have an influx of moles but it's just likely that the one mole that you have is is very active you know it's Mm. it's been moist or it's been you know um it's it's a it's a the tunneling conditions are really good in your yard um they've had a couple busy nights so it's often if it's a male mole and you have a typical yard uh you probably just have one mole females are a little bit less territorial and if you have a big space you might have two female moles and also moles are transient so if we pay attention we might come to realize that if we go out and we tramp down the mole hills every day for you know a month or so that all of a sudden there aren't any for a while so the mole is likely left and maybe a different mole will come you know in another couple of months so it might be a recurring problem but you know removing the mole that you have there isn't going to solve your problem forever another mole is likely to show up if you have good mole soil so for moles the best thing to do is i mean there are traps that work you can get those uh subterranean medieval torture device looking skewering traps that will you know bring forth a dead skewered mole now and then. But as I said, you'll you'll have to just keep doing it when another mole comes. So this really ties in with our earlier conversation about maybe letting go a little bit about what an ideal garden looks like. And my approach to moles is to go out in the morning when I have a busy one and just, you know, tramp down the mole hills with my foot and go, you know, then go back to my life. I mean, in general, um, it doesn't really work to be killing the critters, right? I mean, that's just not because the there are always critters waiting in the wings to fill the hole that you have created. And also, moving them doesn't work and too. Moving them that's too. Another that's thing another that, misconception. People are always like, "Well, I've I've captured this raccoon and I have humanely moved it," <laughs> yeah. and, and and I always wince because isn't it true that the there's no such thing as a humane relocation that they they don't do well in their new their new place. Yeah, all of those things are true. I mean, most of our lethal options, and I'm not, I mean, you read the book, so you know I'm not against removing animals lethally when there's, you know, some deep conflict or some, you know, really, really good reason for it. And that's often the case with rats because they reproduce so quickly. If you let 
uh, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do around your house and your chicken coop to control the rat population. And there's always going to be rats there. And a couple of rats, you just got to not worry about, you know, if they start, you know, if you start seeing lots of them in the daytime or they start reproducing wildly, then, you know, sometimes you have to take measures and you can do that in as humane a way as possible. For the most part, I think lethal control can be um, avoided. Usually, if we decide to kill an animal in our yard, as you said, Kelly, it's it's short-sighted because there are enough animals in our neighborhoods that, and, and it's a matter of territory. I mean, when you see raccoons in your yard, when you see squirrels in your yard, I talked about moles being transient, and they are. But most of these other animals, you're seeing the same ones. And if you take a look, you can find the squirrel that has the, you know, the bite out of its ear, a little scar on its side, and find some way to identify an individual and realize that you're seeing the same ones. Same with the raccoons. Same with the mother raccoon with her young. You're seeing the same animals over and over again. And so if you take steps to remove those animals... There's so, the population is so great that yes, you're just going to have, you know, you might have a little reprieve for a month or two, but then you'll have, have more. And right, when you move a raccoon, you're moving it into an area where other raccoons have already set up territories. And so the resulting battle can be really bloody and just lead to a terrible death for the raccoon that you've moved. And not just raccoons, but any little mammal that you're moving, like, isn't that Do any of them do well being moved? I have heard from several sources that you can move rats. Of course you can. (laughs) That you can move rats and that you don't have to move them. You know, if you... If anyone's tried to relocate a squirrel, you know, you have to move it across a body of water to keep it from coming back to your house, you know, miles. And and again, squirrels don't, you know, they tend to come back. And if they stay where they are, then again, it's that territorial issue and they and they don't do well. Or you've, now you've introduced a problem squirrel into another neighborhood. So someone else is just going to have to deal with it. I have heard that you can remove rats, you know, less than a mile away and they just are fine. But to do that, you have to catch a rat. And if you've ever tried to catch a rat in a life trap, you know that, um, although you can, I mean, this might, this might be why some people think squirrels are, are dumb is that you can catch a rat in a live trap in about 30 seconds. Whereas you just might never catch a rat in a live trap. <laughs> but about squirrels, you can only, you'll, you'll only catch them once because they figure it out really fast. <laughs> Well, let's move on to um, chickens and the predators of chickens, because there's Mm -hmm. perhaps some confusion of which of our common backyard friends actually will harm chickens, because there's skunks, raccoons, opossums, and of course, coyotes are kind of a no-brainer, but uh, skunks, especially skunks, opossums, uh, and raccoons, we know raccoons are, are... bad agents <laughs> when it comes to chickens. But but I am a little confused about the skunks and the opossums because I hear different things about them. Right. Well, you're right. I mean, a rac- do not trust a raccoon with your uh, chickens daylight or non-daylight. I mean, I am a firm believer that if you really, really want to protect your urban chickens, that the run that they are free in during the day needs to be covered from above. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 and the wire has to go below as well, like you right. know, underneath the coop for the diggers. Right. Because there's this misconception, again, that if you see a rac- that you, that raccoons are nocturnal and that if you see one in the daytime, it's rabbit or something, which is it's definitely not true, especially in this season when the females are sort of out with their the young are still hanging out with the females and she needs to find more food. She's often out foraging more in the daytime and she's perfectly healthy and she would love to get your chicken and is not sad about digging. They're very patient. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, if you are choosing to, I mean, a lot of people, our our chickens love to be out, you know, and have more space. And I, I love to let them out in the yard when the garden is sort of you know, when it's the winter garden and there's not much that they can destroy. But if you choose to leave them untended in the garden, then you have to also make the trade-off that they're more susceptible to predators. So that's, you know, a decision every chicken keep- keeper needs to uh, work through. But yeah, they need, if, for protection, they need to be covered. Uh, skunks and... I mean, opossums and skunks get a huge bad rap. And people... I mean, one thing I learned researching this book is how much people hate opossums. That was going to be one of my questions. Why <laughs> Why the hatred? We hate opossums. I mean, it's this animal that everyone... It just seems to 
people seem to think it's like our, their God-given right and even responsibility to hate opossums. I think one of the reasons is that they're so weird looking. I mean, everybody thinks they're ugly and icky and pointy and weird and slow. And, you know, maybe I don't think I'm not going to go ahead. I'm not going to call them ugly, but they are weird looking and they are slow and they behave in a way that just is so different from other animals that we just can't wrap our heads around them. And we judge them for being different and (laughs) ugly, you know, just like we do so many other things. People talk about opossums attacking their chickens all all the time. And I just want to respond that it's very, if you have a full size chicken and something killed it, it is so unlikely to have been an opossum. They're just too big for an opossum to deal with. Now, if you have a little six week old chicken and you've let it out or you have bantams, maybe you need to make sure that they're definitely locked in at night um, away from opossums. Opossums are not likely to come out in the daytime and, and eat your chickens, unlike some of these other animals, um, unlike raccoons. Raccoon, or opossums visit our chicken coops to eat the chicken food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's why, that's why they're there. Beautiful source of, of non-moving, easy-to-access food. So if we want to keep opossums out of the chicken coop, just like any other nocturnal animal, close the chicken coop up at night and close the girls in. Another thing about opossums that people with chickens might want to remember is that while they tend to not eat chickens, one of the favorite things to eat is mice and rats and cockroaches. So things that we really do, uh, you know, want to keep out of our chicken coop. Mm. Um, so, th- so they're, they can actually be beneficial. To- they can actually catch a rat or a mouse. They seem so slow moving. Do they, do yeah. they have hidden speed that comes out when they need it? That's exactly what they have. Oh, yeah. they're- <laughs> the last minute and they're very patient and observant and quiet. So they can sit, you know, in, in the path of something and, um, and catch it in ways that, that we couldn't. I, I've been jealous. I was thinking about you guys and I've seen your game, your bird camera on your blog, which I love and which I'm super, super jealous of. And my very low tech version of that is that in many months, for many months of the year, my family and I, my husband and my daughter and I sleep outside in the backyard and we're sleeping out there now. It's starting to get cooler here in Seattle, but we'll sleep out there till, you know, maybe Halloween and we start in June. And so because I'm an insomniac, I hear everything that goes on outside at night. And so I'm up hearing um, raccoons breaking twigs and I hear their little trills. And one night it was weirdly quiet outside and I couldn't sleep and it was starry and I could see the moon up, you know, in the screen over the top of the tent. And so I, I opened the tent to look outside and flashed my flashlight around and there in the chicken coop, which we had stupidly not closed the night before on the ramp to the chicken coop was this small opossum. And I shined my light on this little opossum and it looked at me and then it rolled itself into a little ball and covered its face. <laughs> and it was so cute. It was so cute. And of course, they have these white faces that even in the dark kind of glow. And so when they want to hide, that's what they do. They they cover them. Oh. And I loved hearing from this wildlife professional that I talked to uh, um, a lot in writing this book. He, you know, one of his big jobs is removing, and, and he's a big non-lethal um, assistant with your wildlife problems. Um, so he will help people uh, figure out, you know, how the animals are getting into their houses, how to get the raccoons or the opossums out of the attic, and then seal it all up for you. So he was talking about the difference between going after a raccoon in an attic and an opossum. And he said, and, and usually they're in your attic when they're, when they're nesting, when they're, having, when they're having young. And if you just leave them alone for a while, they'll have made a mess, but they will go away and then no. you can. Opossums, are, are they one of the animals that keeps moving all the time? Like, the, you know, you won't have the same opossum in you your like yard. like raccoons. Or is it raccoons that I'm thinking of? Raccoons, who just move right. all, who, who don't stay in one place? Well, they don't, you will, especially during the breeding season. So for the several months of early spring into early winter, when they're um, breeding and then caring for young, you will definitely see the same raccoons around. So raccoons are territorial and you will 
you will often see the same ones. Opossums are more transient and they'll wander from place to place. If you have an opossum show up under your porch to sleep and you, you know, find it there, um, it's likely to be gone in a few days or a week. If it has a really good food source, I mean, if you have an open garbage can and you're putting good stuff in there or you're putting, you know, an cat open food on cat food out, yeah. they're definitely going to be encouraged. Yeah, Ayanda, you started to talk about how uh, there's a difference between raccoons and opossums in terms of getting them out of the attic. And I'm wondering what the uh, the expert you had uh, had, to, had to say about that. Since he's usually going after them when they have young, and that's the reason they're holing up in your attic is for the protected shelter, he will encounter the mother animal. And so he says when he goes in after a raccoon, the mother raccoon is just really easy to find. And it's easy to find her young because she will run out and she'll be growling and she'll be mad. And the young will be, you know, you know, chirping and squirming around. And so he he just knows what he's dealing with. And with the opossums, he said it is the absolute opposite. He has the most difficult time finding them because the opossum kits are so well hidden and the female opossum will just hide herself, curl herself into a little corner and cover her face. And he will have to search and search in order to find the opossum. He says they're really, you know, they're frady cats. So when they're showing us their teeth, when they're baring their teeth and they're making themselves look big and scary, it is all a show. So we don't have to worry, like, if well... Those teeth are scary. Those teeth are scary, but they're not as... Yeah, we shouldn't we shouldn't be terrified of them. But, of course, we would want to put on gloves and stuff if we were trying to... W- like would you face ever, a growling raccoon? Well, would you ever put on something like like big big barbecue gloves or something Armor? and try to remove... <laughs> <laughs> remove a possum from your attic um, if you were doing Doesn't a DIY like a DIY thing or is it myself, not a DIY but... thing should we just probably call professionals call a, a good professional um, like this guy who understands how to remove them to you know a place where they're safe without killing them and who is going to then work with you on you know figuring out cleaning out your attic safely um, of feces and then sealing it up so that you won't have the problem in the future yeah prevention is the cure right well Um, in general right that that is exclusion (laughs) and the things that we don't want in our houses probably it's it's exclusion it's picking up the cat food it's that kind of stuff yeah i talked to my my favorite line about this is from um a friend of mine who's an urban wildlife biologist here in washington and he said it's not rocket science. He said he just gets all of these calls, but you know, but I did, I found this and I did what you said, but it's coming back. And, you know, he says, it's not rocket science. Bring the pet food in at night, bring your pets in at night. Um, if there's holes where animals or there's um, openings where animals can enter your house, close them up. If your bird feeders are inviting mostly rats and starlings and bears, take them down. You know, it just very simple measures. And I think that that kind of goes, ties in with what I said earlier, that kind of maybe taking some time to, um, instead of just reacting against the animals we see, take some time to just observe, observe and see who's there and what they're doing in your yard. Your camera is a great idea. Just spending time watching is a great idea. Sleeping outside will open your your eyes and your ears to things. It's mayhem out there at night in, in the city. It's wonderful. And when we come back, you know, into the house in later autumn, when we get too cold to sleep outside, it's with this deepened awareness that, you know, there is, we forget about it when we you know, close our windows and pull the shades at night. But the world is 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 out there. The wild world is is uh, right active. outside our back door. Right. And let me flip that question around too and ask: What are the things that we can do to encourage wildlife in our yards and our cities? Well, native planting is the very best thing. So even you know, instead of bird feeders, planting native plants and shrubs that offer both shelter and food. And the single most, I mean, this is something we learned since we were, you know, little kids and Girl Scouts, and everybody was told to plant a tree on Arbor Day. Planting a trees is the, I mean, if you're, you know, in, in, not in a desert or something, planting trees is the single most beneficial thing that we can do to provide habitat sanctuary um, for wild animals safely 
without increasing conflict with ourselves and our homes, and also increasing the diversity of animals that can live here. So we were talking about the birds, you know, the the common birds that can live with humans. And there's a lot of pretty ones in our cities too, not just starlings and pigeons and house sparrows, but we have robins and we have that beautiful, you know, brown spotted flicker, um, woodpecker called flickers. There's lots of warblers that come through during migration. So the bird life is is really lovely here. But if we just increase the habitat by a little bit, by a few trees in our neighborhoods, we can start to invite some of those species that can live on woodland edges and could live close to humans because they're they're not super shy, but they just need a tiny bit more habitat than we typically offer. So some of the other, like the downy woodpeckers or the hairy woodpeckers, um, some of the wrens beyond the the house wren or the Buick's wren that we normally get in the city. Um, some of the migratory birds like tanagers will spend more time among us. So planting, native planting and the planting of trees is the single best thing that we can do. What about just leaving piles of sticks or stones, like sort of having an untidy floor to your garden? Does that help too? You know, I've just experimented this with this in my own yard and we have a patio in the backyard and I sort of hate it because it's concrete and I think about hammering it out. But instead, I just let all of the leaves and stuff fall onto the patio and it creates this little layer of Sometimes I sweep it up, but in the fall and winter when we're not out there, I just let it accumulate and let the little bit of soil beneath the leaves sort of accumulate. And what happens is that birds that I would never see in my backyard, and these are thrushes, like the varied thrush, hermit thrush, and even the beautiful little, during migration, the beautiful little woodland Swainson's thrush, will come and toss the leaves and find the insects beneath it. And they would never come to my yard. Otherwise, they, they don't like, you know, lawns, um, They but they like under underbrush and duff. Mm-hmm. So, yes, a mess, um, a little bit of what we would consider a mess can attract more native wildlife to our yards. Now, the piles of sticks are sort of, uh, you know, maybe, maybe not, um, because they're another place for rats. Oh, right. <laughs> I was thinking about lizards and such, but yeah, probably it would just yeah. be the rats. I mean, if you're in a place, I mean, because reptiles and amphibians are having such a, a hard time right now. If you're in a place where there are uh, garter snakes, Um, or other snakes that can live alongside humans, one of the things you can do is put a pile of rocks in a warm place and cover it with um, black paper, like roofing paper. Mm -hmm. So it creates a shelter for them and it creates a sort of heated area. Um, My dad made some of these in a house that he used to live in, even here in the Pacific Northwest, um, where we don't have as many snakes. And he called it a hissing pit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because every time you took off the black, you know, tar paper, there were just snakes, just piles of snakes that discovered <laughs> these these rocks. So you're right. I mean, th- those untended corners, I, I really believe in saving a little corner of wildness that we just don't tend at all, no matter how small your yard is. And yeah, those piles of sticks, it's amazing. We just, we... um just pruned some evil shrubs in our backyard and left the pile of, we didn't get to moving the pile of sticks for a couple of days. And when I went out there, it was full of juncos and also um, some other ground sparrows that I never see. Um, we see juncos in our yard, but they were all attracted to these, these sticks. And then there are other bird species that I don't see. And they had found, it, it's just like, if you build it, they will come, you know? So <laughs> you leave these things there and, um, and, and they find them. They're just ready. So, yeah, I think although it can provide shelter for rodents that you don't want, I think overall little corners of wildness and piles of um, sticks and stuff can be wonderful. Now I'm remembering we've gotten off track a little bit. We have our reader question still and, and the chicken question. And I have two quick chicken questions for you. We need to confirm are skunks chicken killers or not? Okay. And then I have another question. Okay. Skunks, again, are pretty much in the opossum category. And you can see their little, their size is, I mean, they're, they're very, very furry, right? So think about a skunk dunked in water. It becomes really small, sort of like when you wash your dog or furry dog or something compared to a raccoon. 
the mm-hmm. size of a raccoon is just, you know, it's just a lot more animal than a skunk. Um, so skunks are in the same category as opossums in that if you have um, younger, unprotected chickens, um, it's good skunk food. But a full-grown chicken is unlikely to be taken by a skunk. And then our other, our official reader question here is, it's actually kind of a funny one. He apparently hawks like to sit around his yard up high and stare into his chicken coop all day long. And he thinks it's stressing his chickens out. I, I've, I've seen hawks doing that in our yard as well. Um, he wants to know if there's any way to discourage the hawks from hanging around and bothering his chickens. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, for one thing, I think it's just so cool to have a hawk in your backyard. I know. I'm always <laughs> thrilled. Right? Sometimes the ladies are less than thrilled and they make noises. <laughs> I have to go out and... It means a couple of things. I mean, we have the common hawks that we would have would be the sharp-shinned or Cooper's hawks, which eat birds. So they they eat small birds exclusively. That's all they eat. Um, Or a red-tailed hawk, which the ubiquitous red-tailed hawk, which will eat anything. They'll eat, you know, your chihuahua. They'll eat a snake. They'll eat a chicken. They'll eat whatever they can get. So again, for protecting the chickens, it sounds like this guy has a covered run, but the chickens are just worried about the hawks. If you have the little bird eating hawks, then, you know, sadly, (laughs) the way to not attract them is to not have birds in your yard. So if you have, they often come to um, homes that have feeders. So um, where little birds congregate so that they have really easy pickings. If it's a red-tailed hawk, um, they're probably actually coming to look at the chickens, whether they can get to them or not, you know, depends (laughs) on how good your animal husbandry is. As far as stressing out the chickens, I'm just not that worried about, I mean, uh, they might be, I mean, if they're so stressed that they're not laying eggs or something, that would be a problem. But if they're safe and they're just, I, I think it just gives them something to do, you know, to <laughs> w- watch a wild hawk. I, I, I just, I just wouldn't worry about it that much. And I would enjoy the hawk. I mean, when we live in urban places, we're often so separated from that really direct, you know, predator prey relationship. And so seeing a, a predator, I just think we just get a visceral reaction, just kind of this biological excitement and over that round of life and the vulnerability of life. I just think it's so exciting and rich to have a predator around that I think that might outweigh your chickens being a a little worried. They can handle it. (laughs) Speaking of predators, we, before we go, we need to speak about coyotes. Uh, We have a reader question about coyotes. And then I have a particular interest in coyotes because perhaps because of the environmental stresses, they are thick in our neighborhood right now. Uh, and there's a coyote kill zone across the street from our house where there's leavings. It's, it's, it's amazing. So I, I'm particularly fascinated with the, with the coyotes. And I have my own question, which I am greedily going to put in front of the reader question, <laughs> which, is, which is where do coyotes, urban coyotes, sleep? Where, where's their den? Where do they raise their pups? So those are two different things, usually. So they'll raise their pups in um, a scraped depression that they will make somewhere that they consider sheltered and safe. So usually it's in a green space that edges uh, an urban place. But you also hear of them um, making their um, their dens for pups in corners of very protected backyards Mm. where there are no, you know, dogs and there are no large pets that they feel threatened by. So if there's a, you know, a deep backyard, occasionally you hear about them doing that in a corner, but usually it's, it's a little bit farther out of our neighborhoods among some, you know, trees or woodlands or, or woodlot that, that, that they can find. And they will stay there just until, you know, the, the young are, are grown and, playful enough to not settle in one place all the time. And then they'll uh, move around and sleep, not necessarily in one place, but again, usually in a more protected place, a little bit outside of our neighborhoods, if they, if there is such a place, but otherwise in occasionally if they have a place that they become accustomed to and know the habits of the house, they might 
occasionally sleep under a porch. That's uncommon. But at the backs of deep backyards, occasionally. Um, but usually it's at park edges or, you know, green space edges, hmm. golf courses. The edges, treed edges of golf courses are a classic place. So they can cross huge. boulevards to I to get to their safe spaces. Can I always I'm I'm always amazed that they live here in in the heart of L.A. Um, uh, two blocks off of Sunset Boulevard, and we do have two kind of wild, largish parks in our general area. Yep. But to get to them is like Death Race 2000. I have no idea how they can possibly patrol our neighborhood for chickens and then, you know, go go back to these parks. Well, I guess parks. that's what is their range? Is that kind of the well, part of that question? Well, no, yeah, but what, what, what in, does – they must know how to cross – a uh, six-lane boulevard. Have, do you know anything about their um, there learning? wildlife ab- corridors for coyotes? There's no wildlife corridors here. I mean, they can't unless they cross like Glendale Boulevard and these these traffic sewers from hell. Have you have you ever seen them um, negotiating traffic, Landa? Well, no, not at not at that level. People have. I mean, roadkill. I'm, Cars kill more urban coyotes than anything else. Cars and then dogs also kill the pups. Um, so those are the main hazards for urban coyotes. So a, a lot of them die, do die on roads. Do they try to navigate them? Yes, they absolutely do. One of the things is that they, they travel um, mostly at night. So the road is probably a little bit quieter. Another thing that might be going on is that there just might be, um, as you said, there's a lot of pressures on the coyotes in your neighborhood right now. And they might be denning and sleeping in areas that are not as, as remote as they would normally prefer. And, and, that's, and, and that's happening in cities all over the country. So they could be in an alley behind a dumpster or something like that. Right. Culverts, things mm, like that. Culverts, yeah. right. Now, we have another uh, reader question. She just, she's worried when she walks her dog, if she sees a coyote while she's walking her dog, what do you do when you spot a coyote and you know, she's basically looking for safety tips? Mm-hmm. You know, I would be, personally, if I was out in the morning and I saw an off-leash dog that I didn't know, I would just be thousands of times more worried than if I see a coyote based on maybe not emotionally, like maybe my reaction to a coyote would be one of excitement and alarm and caution, whereas it wouldn't be with a domestic dog that we see all the time. But in terms of statistics and what I know is more likely to happen with a dog versus a coyote, we have way more reason to be cautious about loose dogs than coyotes because coyotes tend to be very wary of us. If she has a small dog, I would pick it up And the official advice is to pick up a little stick and throw it towards the coyote or just ignore it, you know, either turn around and go the other way or just they, they're not, you know, that thing about they're going to see you running and they're going to want to run after you isn't true about, it's true about cougars, but it's not true about coyotes. Yell at them, throw something at them or, or just ignore them is the, is the advice. And the reason that that is the advice is I talked to one expert, Stan Garrett, and he's from the University of Chicago, and he has studied urban coyotes more extensively than anyone in North America or probably anywhere in the world. And he just says that every time we see a coyote, it's what he calls a teachable moment. Coyotes in their natural, when they don't live so close to humans and when they don't live um, in and around urban neighborhoods, they're not as nocturnal as they are when they do live close to us, which I just find fascinating. Mm. So they're up and down. They nap during the day. They get up and they wander around and they fall asleep. And so they're up and down all day and all night. So their nocturnalness is an adaptation to their wariness of people. Mm. And it's their way of separating their lives from our lives. So when we go to bed, they come out and they don't have to see us. As we're pressed into, you know, like drought conditions or we're pressed into more proximity, we do see them a little bit more in the daytime, but still not that much. And so what Dr. Garrett recommended to me was that preserving that divide between us in, in these, you know, in time, we're up during the day and they're not, um, is the best way for people to tolerate coyotes. Because when they start seeing them, they start freaking out, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if coyotes go their way and, and we go our way, more people will be tolerant of the coyotes among us. And he feels that we can absolutely live in, in proximity to 
a predator of this size. So he says, if you see one, chase it away, throw a little something at it. I'd have a hard time doing that. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so thrilled. Yes, that's yeah. that was my response. I said, you know, when I see a coyote, I said, but you know, if I see a coyote, I don't want to throw something at it. I just want to, and that's what I do. I don't throw something at it. I sit and watch it. I just want to watch it as long as I can. They're absolutely magical. You know, the way they move. I, I don't know. They're, they're, first, it's always the same thing where it's like, oh, there's a loose dog because you know, as a dog person, I am always looking out for them. And, and I go, oh, you know, awfully dog, loose dog. What? And then all, but then all of a sudden my brain, it takes like a second and the brain clicks in and says, that's not moving like a dog. That's right. not behaving like a dog. They, they follow their own rules and they move in their own way. And then I just freeze and I'm completely thrilled. And it never lasts for very long. They, they, they certainly do, um, vanish quickly. It's incredible how they vanish, isn't it? You'll be looking and they'll, they seem to just be wandering into a shrubbery or something and then they're just completely gone. And you'll look for a little bit of tail or ear and there's just nothing. And it, it is almost magical how they do that. And I was really impressed with, I mean, here's this, this man I was talking to who's studied, you know, thousands of coyotes and spent hours in observation of coyotes. And I, I said, yeah, I don't want, I don't want to, or something I want to watch it and he we were talking on the phone and he paused and he said yeah me too <laughs> and I just thought you know so there's that fascination and so the official advice is you know chase the coyote away and then the uh, heart advice is maybe you know when do you get to see a wild predator mm-hmm. take a moment and and see it while you can okay one more coyote question from a reader and this might be a hard one she keeps she feeds feral cats uh, and she's trying not to feed coyotes. So she she worries about that. So she keeps her food, she, she puts the food away at night. Is there anything else you could recommend to her uh, in terms of keeping, uh, being able to feed feral cats and not feed, I guess, everything else in the universe, including coyotes? Well, that is a really tricky question. She sounds lovely, for one thing, to have this appreciation of coyotes and also compassion for feral cats, um, all of whom have a tough life. I'm a cat lover myself. And um, this is complicated by the fact that feral cats are a favorite food of urban coyotes. (laughs) So it's not just the cat food in this case. It's the cats. Cats. (laughs) Um, And so feeding feral cats and having feral cats around in one place where they congregate could definitely make it easier whether you keep the cat food. I mean, it's definitely good to take the cat food in at night in any case. But then there's the problem of, of the congregation of feral cats. The which coyotes would, would notice that. Yeah. And so possibly, I mean, in a neighborhood like yours, it sounds like where the proximity is really tight these days. So that is something that she'll just have to think through. I mean, there's no way to find a way for feral cats and coyotes to to coexist. It's one of the things that uh, wildlife biologists see as a positive in terms of the presence of coyotes is that in places where coyotes have been removed, the feral cat populations increase and the diversity of bird species and the numbers of birds overall plummet. Mm. And so in places where there are coyotes controlling the feral cats, I mean, you can do um, counts of bird diversity um, bird species diversity and it goes up. So that's seen as a positive for for urban predators. <laughs> Not necessarily for cat lovers. So for, I mean, Yeah, is, but lock up your kitties. You have to lock up your kitties to keep them safe. You absolutely do. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean when this discussion is is one of those those things that makes you realize that in this conversation about our relationship to wild animals, we can be respectful and we can be wise and we can act with as much grace as we can come up with, but it doesn't mean that it's clear what to do. You know, it doesn't mean that there's there's no black and white and there's no right answer all the time. Where can people get a copy of your book or stay in touch with you or learn more about what you're up to? Well, my publisher is Little Brown, uh, part of Hachette Book Group. So I am currently victimized by the Hachette versus Amazon battle. So um, if you do order from the evil empire of Amazon, I understand that you need to wait a couple weeks for the book to come, even though they have it in stock. Mm. Um, So 
I love to go independent. Your local independent bookstore should have it. Powell's absolutely has it. I never thought there would come a day when Barnes and Noble would be the good guy, but Barnes and Noble <laughs> has it. Okay. Um, and yeah, and my book Crow Planet, same, same deal. My sort of languishing at the moment blog is the Tangled Nest, and I'm re-envisioning that blog. And you, you guys know how that goes. So um, s- stay tuned on the Tangled Nest, or definitely go and explore the archives. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you, Lyanda, for being on our podcast. And, and we want to encourage everybody to look at Lyanda's books because they are wonderful. And I want to thank her too. Thanks. It was so fun to talk to you both. That was Lyanda Lynn Hopped. We ran out of time and didn't get a chance to talk to her about crows, the subject of one of her previous books. We'll have to have her on again. And many thanks to those of you who sent in questions. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on rootsimple.com. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.